and attending two events, Mob Movie Con and Sopranos Con. And there's an organization that puts on these con things. Met a lot of the people from Sopranos, you know, a lot of the cast members. We got to interact and talk. And I was asked to come, by the way, by the uh, host, the organizers of the event. And I was able to sit down with a few people. And prior to that, I had been speaking quite a bit to Armand DeSanti. I think I mentioned that, you know, he and I had connected. And we were going to get together and do a sit-down. And we were going to do it by Zoom because Armand lives in the New York area. And Armand actually mentioned to me, you know what, I'm going to be at Mob Movie Con. Why don't we meet there, Michael? And I said, well, you know, the organizers asked me to come. I wasn't going to come. But if you're going to be there and we get to sit down, we get to meet, maybe that's better. So I decided to go. We spent several hours together. And I got to tell you something. He's just a great guy. You know, he impressed me in so many different ways. Aside from the fact that, you know, I have boasted about the HBO Gotti movie with Armand playing John Gotti. I've been boasting about that movie for 20 years. It was, in my opinion, I think it was the best mob movie ever made. I really mean that. It was an HBO. It wasn't in theaters, but it was so brilliantly acted. The story was, everything about it was great. I just loved the movie. I probably watched it 20 times, and I've been plugging it and plugging it and plugging it just because I like it. You know, and Armand was appreciative of that. He, he noticed that he was following me and he saw that I had done that. So we were talking uh, for quite some time. Great guy. I actually interviewed him live in front of several hundred people at the Soprano Con thing. We were on stage together. We have some video of that. And then I got to sit down with him and just talk. There's so many things I was impressed with. Number one, his social consciousness, his awareness, his just command or control of so many different subjects was really impressive to me. So aside from his acting, it was just him as a person that I just enjoyed so much. And I have to say, we've struck up a friendship now. I'd love to have him in my television series. I'm not saying that that could happen. Of course, you know, there's, there's a business involved in this, but I'd love to have him. I see him in so many different roles. He'd kill the role of my father. I mean, he'd be brilliant in it. He's just a brilliant actor. First time I saw him was in a movie called Q&A. If you haven't seen it, it's with Nick Nolte and Armand DeSante. Armand plays a uh, Puerto Rican drug dealer, and he's terrific in it. I mean, just terrific. Everything he does is great. But just some of the standout movies, you know, Unfaithfully Yours with Dudley Moore. My wife loved that movie. You know, he was terrific in that. Mambo Kings shows you how versatile an actor he was. Terrific in that. Gotti, of course. I mean, I can't say enough about that movie. He was an American gangster, played another mob guy then. He was terrific there. And, of course, Q&A with Nick Nolte. He was so good. There was one scene in there. He was just electric in the scene. Gotta watch it. So, here it is. We spent about an hour and a half together. My sit-down with Armando Santa. Enjoy. <laughs> scene I remember, you were facing Timothy Hutton. Remember you guys were all in a room and you just, the way you got down on it, I was hooked from that moment on. So, 
That's an interesting story. You know, that was written, uh, Q&A was written by the former Supreme Court Justice of Manhattan, Edwin Torres, who literally came out of Spanish Harlem in that neighborhood. And a lot of what Edwin wrote, including Carlito's Way, he wrote a number of features. But um, Sidney took his book, and Sidney wrote the screenplay. Edwin had an amazing life in Spanish Harlem. I got to know him, and uh, actually, some amazing coincidences. My family was from Washington Heights, not so far away. And the thing is that uh, Edwin's understanding of those characters, and I, that, that actually is based on a true story. And his understanding, having a visceral understanding growing up in the neighborhood with these guys, that was amazing. Now, I actually watched him as a judge, and he was a hard taskmaster. Very, uh, I mean, your heart, your heart skips a beat when you see somebody who's sentenced for real. It's horrible. Yeah. But he was a good, uh, a great judge, and he was a hard, like I say, taskmaster. And uh, I'm sure a lot of guys, uh, a lot of guys did time under him. He was tough. Great man, though, and a wonderful writer. And I'll tell you a wild story. I actually, um, through him, I got permission for that character to actually listen. And I, I literally was given like five minutes. I said, I want to listen to a real character of that uh, background and uh, life. They put me in touch with the DA. They allowed me like five minutes. That was it. I had to get out. I listened to one conversation between a father and a daughter. The daughter was graduating from Harvard Law School. The father was literally a character like Bobby Tex. And I remember one thing he said to the daughter. He said, you know, in my life, there was a day I was on the block. I could have gone right or I could have gone left. And I took a left. And that's why you are where you are. And I am where I am. And it blew my mind. And I thought the perception that these people are just inhumane is wrong. There are people that end up in circumstances in life that blow their lives apart. You know, and that one choice he made. Just that one spontaneous that one decision. one spontaneous moment blew his lifetime. And I've, I've always believed that. Um, it's wild, you know, coming from that neighborhood. I don't want to touch upon Eddie again, but coming from that neighborhood, I grew up in... Your troubles will soon fade away. There's a... 19, when was it, Nine, about 1993 to, I'm standing on the corner of 72nd and Broadway. Guy pulls up in a pickup truck, looks at me. He says, hey, you recognize these eyes? I looked at him. I said, you're Joey. I had not seen this kid since I was seven years old. I used to run around the neighborhood with him. And uh, almost started to cry. We so moved. He said, you know, I see what you did with your life. You did so many things. I saw you on television. I saw you in the movies. He says, you've had, you've had an amazing life already. You know, and I, I said, I was so touched. And I said to him, what have you been doing? Where are you going? What, what are you doing? He said, you know, I just got off 28 years of heroin. I never left the block. Wow. And I thought, my parents took me off that block when I was eight years old. And uh, it changed my life. And to get back to what I was saying, life 
happens in seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I play so many of these. I play probably more bad guys than the, the 39th precinct is chased by. You're so good at it. My, I gotta point, my point is that life happens in seconds, and when you study, you study the characters that I've played. The, um, you know, diabolical people that I've played. I mean, conditions are everything to me when I when I study a character. And coincidentally, Edwin Torres, who I started, who wrote Q and A. Former Supreme Court Justice of Manhattan unequivocally has written the best script on the mob I have ever read. Really? It's never been produced because it's a very expensive film. Fiction? But, Fictionalized? Yeah, it's about his life and his brother's life in Spanish Harlem growing up. And Tony Salerno, Fat Tony? Fat yeah. Tony he had an operation in that neighborhood yeah, in Spanish Harlem. Harlem. That's right. Yeah. I think after Prohibition. Or yeah, yeah. I can't remember. There was a few people up there. Yeah, well, he was there right until the mid-80s when he went to jail. He had a, a social club in Harlem. That was his area. I knew Tony well. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I liked him. I liked him a lot. And he's a wonderful character in the film. Yeah. And the way Eddie portrays those characters and it's all told through the eyes of these two brothers mm -hmm. and a tragedy that ensues really? i don't know you know but eddie became supreme court justice i not i don't know what happened to his brother but it's an amazing story and and through the two viewpoints of these boys you get a picture of the mafia like you've never you've never seen really it. remarkable really remarkable so that was a big event in my life because sydney lumet had been watching me as a young actor and uh when he picked me out for that role, I was uh, I was not only flattered, but the love thing I loved about Sydney is that he gave me the script in May, and we started rehearsing, rehearsing, which nobody does anymore. Mm -hmm. Literally as if we were in the theater for almost two or three weeks before we made the film. Then we shot everything in the film, literally in one take. Actors, <laughs> actors today want 10, 20 takes. One take, the film is that done. Was it. For, for everybody, including Nick Nolte. Wow. We just zipped. Sydney's normal day on a film set was seven hours. That's it. The crew loved him. Because as you know, most films you work 15 hours minimum. Sure. Seven hours, that was it. That's how prepared he was. Wow. But he did expect almost everyone to bring it in, in one day. It was wild. But I'm, I'm thrilled that you liked that film because uh, I think it's one of the best films I've ever been in. And, and, and also, it's a great story about... It really is. And, and strangely enough, it's very timely. When you look at what's gone on yes. in this city in the last few years, I mean, it's very timely. It really was. Nick Nolte was terrific. No, no. Terrific. Timothy, Louis Guzman, so many great actors. They're all great. Film. All great. Let me ask you this. You know, you have, uh, you've won more awards than I can even recall, you know, for, for in, in so many ways. I've Not only blessed. here, but internationally, everywhere. I've been you, blessed. You've been terrific. And I knew you grew up Washington Heights. Parents took you out. Did you know from an early age that you were going to be a success in this business? Do you have, did you, did you feel it right away? I knew, I knew as a boy I was a performer because my parents took me to Broadway theater and I grew up watching musicals. The first, the first musical I saw was Peter Pan. So I was trying to fly ever since. I was about <laughs> four years old, I was jumping off pianos forever. I knew then that I, I, I was struck with the magic of theater, and I spent many years in the theater. A lot of people don't know that. I spent 10 years in the theater before I made my first film. I did theater, and I also did um, television uh, at Rockefeller Center. I did two soaps in the state about three or four years, and I was doing theater at night.
So I used to work literally from 7 in the morning to like 1 in the morning. But I was young, and, and it was a phenomenal um, training ground, uh, discipline-wise. Because any actor worth his salt, his life is about discipline. If you don't, if you don't discipline your life to the work that you're, you're given, you can't achieve anything as an actor. So that was an incredible, uh, incredibly active period of my life, but uh, inc incredibly uh, the people that I worked with. I've been blessed all my life. I mean, the people that have, that have crossed my path in my lifetime have been angels. I mean, I've been guided by angels. I mean, there's so many phenomenal people and so many phenomenal minds that I work with. And um, it's been a blessing, you know. But I think early on, uh, having been to Broadway so many times, I was, like I said, I was very caught up in the magic of theater. Oddly enough, I was a musician as a boy. I was a professional drummer and singer for years. And um, music came automatically to me. It was My mother was a musician. And um, came automatically. Acting did not. Acting was a very difficult process for me. I didn't realize how immense process of acting was, and also how immense the um, amount of study and homework that was in the acting. So, I mean, it really was a form of education, because I went to drama school, they demanded that you read, I have read vo volumes of, of um, theater, volumes of literature, phenomenal, because I never went to university or school. I went straight from high school to drama school, and straight into the theater. I would say first 10 years in the theater was a form of education for me. Because it was uh, uh, the amount that I was obligated to read and study. Um, but acting never came. Believe it or not, acting still doesn't not come easy to do. Really? No. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know I find, that. I find what's happened because of economics, I, I, and especially for young people today, they have almost thrown the creative process out the window. They literally want to throw you before the camera. They expect you to have a great performance ready. And in truth, to be a professional actor, you should have your performance ready to go. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying for young actors, they don't understand. They need time to process. They need time for osmosis. They need time to put things into their DNA to be able to perform. I find that part of it uh, very disappointing. I've walked on so many sets where I thought, this is such an unfair environment to put people in, mm. but that's economics, that's all money, yeah. you know. And I think now, in the advent of the way things, you know, for Barry Diller to come out and say, vir virtually, that, well, virtually, that, that um, feature films may disappear now and theaters may disappear, yeah. for Barry Diller to say that, You're a smart guy. it's a sign of the times. Yeah. And also, the process, I feel, is, uh, is going to be worsened by the speed that this technology gives us. It's amazing technology. Mm -hmm. But technology's got nothing to do with the art or the creative process or someone who's gonna you know, evoke or, or um, expose the soul, you know? Yeah, no, I, you prefer uh, theater or film? You know, I, I love working in the film. And I worked in the theater a long time. I love theater, I always have. The amount of time that theater takes as well as film is enormous. But I will say that the theater process is much more difficult because if you're doing eight shows a week, the demands on your body and mind are extraordinary. As it is in film, but in film, I prep it 
Honestly, my film process is my theater process. To me, everything is theater. In fact, I, I really believe that really good actors um, that really connect, um, it's all theater. Because if you were to watch a set of dailies, for instance, and you see when an actor gets in the zone of what he's doing, what's natural doesn't convey. Mm. It's energyless. There's no energy. What conveys is what's theatrical, even though it may be done in the most minimalistic way, it conveys its theatrical energy. And I find the, real, the really gifted actors, are, whether they train in the theater or not, they have theatrical energy. And that's what, believe it or not, that's what registers on film. It's amazing to watch. Uh, I see what you mean. Let me ask you, when you when you're making a decision to take on a role, What's the most important aspects of that project that, or that role that you're looking for? Well, it's a very interesting question because I tell you the biggest dilemma that any actor has, and I have it a lot, is the writing. Mm -hmm. Writing is everything, and, and uh, I can't stress it enough. I, I was so blessed in my life. I work with some phenomenal writers. I've also worked with writers that need help. They have good ideas that you can work around, improvise with, and play with. But writing to me is everything. I mean, you know, when you look at the great actors that did great scripts, such, such as Brando, and the man was a poet on camera. He was a poet also because the language, the succinctness, the minimalistic writing, it was almost like poetry. It was so simple and so, so small, but so powerful. And sometimes the greatest statements are made in a poem. They're not made in the elaborate... Uh, monologues that people go through. But, but I think writing, to me, is number one. And flaw is number two. I find a really good writer doesn't have to necessarily give you the flaw consciously, but subliminally he's placed a flaw in there. If you can locate the flaw of a character, you locate the vulnerability of a character. By locating the vulnerability of a character, you're completely open to making mistakes as the character, which most characters are making mistakes constantly. Right. That's what makes it fascinating that's, to watch. That's what makes it fascinating, right. But flaw is very important. I look for what makes that person exceptionally vulnerable, or what makes them silly, or ludicrously funny, or, or whatever it is. And the other thing I look for, believe it or not, is uh, where the writer has indicated the character has a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. But I find that when I meet people, I want to find out where the, what the funny bone is. Because I get along with people that normally have a funny bone. If they have no sense of humor, it's a disaster. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know? And yes. I, I don't know. I, I just look that way. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. That brings us to uh, one of my favorite topics and, and one that I know the viewers want to hear about, and that's the movie Gotti. And you know, Armand, I've been plugging this movie for years. I can't thank you enough. For yeah, I'm, well, you I'm know, very flattered, though, I really am. I mean, it, it, brilliant in, in every way. As a matter of fact, whenever I rate it, I rate it even over The Godfather sometimes, believe well, it or not. I mean, I think it's that well done. And I think because I knew the characters well, that I just got such a sense of that movie. It was gripping from beginning to end. I got to ask you, how did you get into the character of, of Gotti? I mean, did you ever meet him? Did you ever talk to him? Did you know him in any way? Because I, I got to tell you why, because I was so fascinated in the way that you played him knowing him as I did, and you, you just elevated his character. I mean, he was a bigger-than-life guy on the street, let's face it, everybody knew. 
But you elevated that character even to another level. Thank you very much. I studied the transcripts, and believe it or not, in the transcripts, which a lot of people know, he was the most recorded, yeah. probably the most recorded character in history. Yes. For real. I mean, they have him taped inside and out. I know. I listened, by the way, I listened to some of those tapes, yes. I was fortunate enough to be able to listen to some of those tapes, and I read the transcripts. I know Howard Beach, I know Ozone Park, I know Starrett City, I know um, Brownsville. There's a cadence, as you know, there's a cadence and there's a rhythm to that survival. What I did know about Gotti, which, which is uh, sad in a way, is that but this is a man who literally, as a baby, as a baby, was put on the street. I mean, he, he came out of 13 children in one family. I, I think the father pretty much abandoned the mother. But the point is that it's one thing to be a street kid, because we know the street guys became the head of AT&T and whatever, God knows. But my point is that um, Gotti had no spiritual guidance. He had no moral guidance. He had no guidance but other street people. And I think that very much led to his uh, mantra of how to survive for himself. And I think it very much is uh, evident, evident in the way he, he behaved all his life. And I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's very easy to, to judge uh, a street person and, and say, you know, there are so many people in society that come from very similar backgrounds. And I'll tell you, if you look at the entire Gotti story, uh, he didn't have much to hold on to. And I think that led to his incredible instinct to survive and to protect his space. And um, can you imagine a young boy who's brought into this fold in, uh, I think it was East New York, where his hero is Albert Anastasia? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's frightening. Yes. yes. It's absolutely frightening. Uh, I mean, he's brought into the world of literally murder incorporated as a boy, and he, he, he's, he's a driver for Anastasia. I mean, his story is just uh, highly, highly unusual. And that's what, I, that's what I knew and had read about him. But I, I, uh, I must say the transcripts, I remember I put some things that I found in the transcripts uh, with permission from Steve Shagan and, and Gary Lucchese and Robert Harmon, I, I put some things from the transcripts that he had said off the cuff, just out of the blue. He would say something like, um, do you think that I'm putting this earth for me to, for me to die, uh, for you to die rich and me poor? Shit, John, this is bigger than killing the fucking president. Hey, you think I was putting this earth to make them rich and me poor? Look at the hit now. For you to die rich and me poor. Who talks like that? Yeah. I mean, that is a line of, of a peasant revolutionary. Yeah. People don't talk like that. I mean, he would say things that just blew my mind. Yeah. I thought, where did you write? Did you write that? Did you, did you, you know what I'm saying? But it, it was the, the construct that he lived in. This absolutely fascinating character to play. Did you find him at all sympathetic? Because I know you say he, he came out of a tough, you know, childhood. Yeah. Did you find uh, Gotti at all sympathetic in studying him? I could find, uh, I certainly could find what was sympathetic about him and what I found out about him is that he was a genuine family man. Yes. He loved his family passionately and was devoted to his family. If that ain't the sign of vulnerability, I don't know what is. Because when it comes down to family, I think all of our 
all of our constructs that we live our lives in are thrown out the window. Because I do anything for my family. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I think that um, in that sense, yeah, he's soulless. No, he's not soulless. Well, he, loved, he loved his family. I can tell you this, um, you know, that tragic situation when his son was, was killed. I was at the funeral, and um, it was the first time that I saw real vulnerability in John. I mean, he was really, he was really broken up over that. You know, yeah. it was very sad. So, I mean, obviously that's a tragedy, but you, you could really tell that this guy had genuine feeling and yeah. genuine love for his family. It's monumental shattering of the heart. I mean, yeah, it's uh, incredible. Let me. Ask, was anybody else up for that role? Huh? Was anybody else up for the role of Gotti? Or was it oh my yours God, from day I'm sure, one? I'm sure there was a lot. You know, I will say that I, I was so fortunate uh, in that project because I had an incredibly sensitive uh, director, Robert Harmon, who was also an incredible cinematographer. I don't know if you remember a film, The Hitcher, with Rutger Hauer, a very unusual film. But I rem remember the way Robert shot that. And, and he would do these close-ups where he literally would be pulling emotion out of the actor. It's incredible, and, and I love the way he shot. And when I heard he was directing it, that, that film clicked in my head, and I thought, this is great. This guy really knows how to shoot. And then I had Gary Lucchese, who was the former vice president of Paramount, who was a brilliant guy in his own right. Stephen Shagan, who wrote it, was a formidably gifted writer. He, he was actually blacklisted, I think, in the 60s, probably the 50s, came back, he wrote the formula for Marlon Brando and George Scott, uh, an amazing writer. And, and I think he also very much pulled from the transcripts. But the way he structured that film, he had really done his homework. He obviously did a tremendous amount of work on that script. It was, it was one of the few, I mean, I look back over the scripts that, that resonated in my head and, and over the years. And I have to say, Steve Shagan was a phenomenal writer. I, never given his that. I mean, I know he wrote for the theater, but he certainly did not write nearly enough for film because he was a gift to our industry. He was an amazing writer, formidable intellect. I talked with him for a while. He passed away a few years ago, but uh, he wrote a lot for the theater. Amazing writer. So, I mean, what I'm saying is the team, uh, I don't need to see any other performances about Gotti or, or show because... You know, when, when you're with a group of men that just get it, they have it in their loins, you know, they know what they're doing. Uh, I had that team, you know. And once, uh, once Anthony Quinn came aboard, at my suggestion, they really gave me a kind of a little of the reins to say who should be in the film. And I, I picked out four actors that I fought for for a long time. And I, I'm so thrilled that they went on to do The Sopranos. They had a, a huge careers from, from that project. So I was very, um, I was thrilled for their lives. I'll tell you why. People don't realize, um, and I know, because I've known so many actors that came out of the theater and went into the film, an actor's life is so vulnerable. There's no tomorrow. People believe there's a tomorrow. There's no tomorrow. You know, if you don't, if you know that you're not working tomorrow, you're hustling. You have to hustle every day of your life. And I remember talking to Anthony Quinn once, and I, I asked him, what was the most difficult sojourn of your career? You had an amazing career. He said, between 50 and 70, I couldn't get any work that I wanted. And I thought, from Anthony Quinn to make a statement like that to me. And at 50, it was his idea 
to buy the rights to Zorba the Greek and, and do Zorba the Greek. That was it. That all came from him. And he got nominated for the Academy Award. I think actors have to be incredibly proactive today, especially in lieu of what's happening to the whole industry in the last five years. Because if you're not proactive, uh, nobody will do the work for you. I think a lot of agencies have even given up the idea of reading. People don't read today. They don't read, they don't read the public record, they don't read the news, they don't read books, but they don't read scripts. And often, they don't even know how to read scripts. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's not the industry it was. When I went into the industry, there were very highly literate agents that really studied scripts and were thinking, Michael's right for this, Joe's right for that, Mickey's right for that. They picked, they picked roles in their head, they said they're right for this. They would think, like, almost like a casting director. I don't think that happens too much. And if you do, if, if you're an actor who's lucky enough to have an Asian who has a literary head, it's, you're way, way ahead of the game. But um, the reality of getting that energy from somebody to study for you is out the window today. So there you have it. That's part one. And uh, you know what? The best is yet to come, so stay tuned for part two coming up shortly. How do I always leave you? You know it. Same way. Not going to change. Be safe. Be healthy. God bless you all. Yes, I'll see you next time. Really yeah, and strangely enough, it's very timely when you look at what 
what's gone on yes. in this city in the last few years, I mean, very timely. Gotti had no spiritual guidance. He had no moral guidance. He had no guidance but other street people. And I think that very much led to his mantra of how to survive for himself. And I think it very much is evident in the way he behaved all his life. constructed that character and, and you probably know more than anyone and probably know a lot of guys who were in the same situation but Gotti at that point in his life was literally putting out fires all day long yeah. I mean, he's putting out one fire after another because nobody he's a fascinating character you know because I, I often thought and, I, and I'm not I don't know this for a fact but I often thought he very much was of the ethos of somebody like a Carlo Gambino by the rules, mm -hmm. you had to go by the book and the rules mm -hmm. of what they, they, the Cosa Nostra demanded. But he didn't grow up in that world. It, wasn't a, it was no longer that world. And I think that he was very divided as a man because everyone around him had already bought into the drug line, you know, the, the heroin pipeline, whatever the case may be. And he's trying to hold on to the rules. But I, I don't know. I don't know how much involved he was in the pipeline himself. But I'm saying it, it's a very interesting character because, in a way, he's living with this mantra in his head that he wants people to abide by. But it's a fiasco. Yeah. Nobody's paying attention. So I mean, it must have been a very lonely, uh, scary journey, uh, as I would imagine the life of any any mob person is a very, very. You know, the, the one thing that I was asked to speak today to some very, very young people on a podcast, and, and with a young rapper, I had an amazing, the audience, the size of his audience is just gargantuan. You know? And the one thing, the one thing I could say that, that, I, that I really had to make, um, make very clear is that 
I performed in roles where I played a lot of diabolical characters, right? You have to understand, if you watch the film and you pay attention to the script and the story, the character ends up in monumental tragedy. And everyone in his life ends up in the same tragedy. And the point is that, you know, I know that film has a, a tremendous effect on people. But it's, it's very important they pay attention to the fact there is a moral to these stories. It's not like we're out there saying, do this. Right. You know, shoot Fabulet for Bush today. Boom. It's not, you know, it's yes. not like we live that life. Yeah. We're trying to communicate something that this way of life and you, what I really appreciate what you've done is you've cut right through the fourth wall with your life and shown your heart and soul and said, people, wake up. You've said that. Mm -hmm. That is your mantra. Wake up. So, so important. Huge, huge message. And I, I, feel, I feel that in, in the film industry, you know, I, I wish there were more, in a way, opening up of many characters that play diabolical characters. Mm -hmm. Understand, we're, we're telling a, a morality tale. You know, in the theater, we have morality plays. All of Shakespeare, we have morality plays. But the point is, I think there's a lot of influence uh, that's unnecessary. A lot of misinterpreted influence. Yeah. But if you study, if you study these films, uh, I hope that God knows that we're trying to convey that these people who delve into these lives and want to, you know, the attractive. You always see depictions of mob guys laughing around the table, everybody's having a great time, you know, and then something horrible happened, they go back to laughing about it, you know. Right. That's, you know that it's not true. That's right. It's all nonsense. But my point is that uh, I hope that young people garner from this, that this is, a, you know, it is no way of life. And I really appreciate what you've done, because in a sense, you really are a very powerful message that you're delivering to people, and, and a very important one. Because this society, I, I honestly think that the, the fascination with the mob goes way back in America for a long time. Mm -hmm. Back to Prohibition, for God's sake. But the point is that the fascination, in a way, is that I think what happened after the Vietnam War, when The Godfather was released, in a strange way, The Godfather is a mirror of a lot of the corruption that went on in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, people I agree are watching with that. the film, and believe it or not, they're watching the metaphor of their own lives and what happened around them. And in the back of, they don't realize it, but in the back of their head, they're seeing this corruption of these people that are into murder, extortion, gambling, whatever they're into, and they're trying to hold on to their family, American values. Mm -hmm. Well, it's incredible hypocrisy. I mean, yeah. the point is that, to me, that film, for the first time in the history of America, my generation had woken up to it. And I think that film is an incredible metaphor and I don't think that Coppola or, or Mario Puzo did that. Intentionally. Uh, in, intentionally. Right. But it's very interesting that it was released right at a time mm -hmm. when the amount of corruption that existed in the 60s is just spellbinding. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I can tell you, Armand, when that movie came out, guys on the street started to carry themselves differently. It brought, it, I'm telling it brought an integrity to the life that maybe people didn't realize before that. And they started carrying themselves differently, walking differently, dressing differently, all yeah. because of that film. It's amazing how a, a film can have such an impact 
uh, on society, yeah. and, you know, even on a certain sector of society, like in our lives. It's yeah. amazing. And you know, uh, this company I came here with, uh, Virtual Cons, mm -hmm. very interesting, you know. They called me two years ago. I didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. They said, you don't know, you don't know the, the fascination the global audience now has with, with uh, mob genre films. Yeah. And like I say, I really think mob genres replaced the American Western. For yeah, real. I agree with it, that. There are morality plays about corruption that exists in our lives. We watch it on the news every night mm -hmm. and we say, well, who's, who's the mafia here? Mm -hmm. you know, which mafia is worse than the other? My point is I didn't realize until I came now, I cannot believe the, the um, fascination with that genre is. I saw it here, thousands of people that showed up and just, yeah. it, it was amazing. I know, it, it really is. You know, I've traveled all around the world and I'm in places like Australia and Singapore. And you say, ah, it's not much of a mob presence here. They're so knowledgeable. They know everything. I get asked questions in Singapore where was Jimmy Hoffa buried? Yeah, I'm saying, you know, all about Paulie Castellano. Of course, Gotti, everybody asked about him. How do they know this? Yeah. Movies, media, you know, this yeah, is absolutely it. absolutely fascinating. It's all, all around the world. It's, it's, all, it's all a metaphor for a corruption that exists within other systems. Yeah. I mean, I worked in, in countries that some people should never dare to go to. But, but I'm saying, my God, the, the corruption that exists in the world. Yeah. I always say, this is, this is the greatest country on earth. And we have... We have in unquestionably a flawed justice system. It's the greatest justice system on earth, for real. People don't realize it. No. There is no place on earth better than where we are right now. There really isn't. Yeah, Ahmad, I agree with you. I have a little bit of a different perspective. Um, I'm writing a book right now. It's called A Mafia Democracy. And the reason I'm writing that, I love this country. I really do. I mean, as I'm born and raised, I love the country. There are flaws in the system, obviously. I have no complaints. I was a criminal at one time. I am very blessed to be here right now, and I really mean that. But I am, I'm watching the way our government is operating, and it scares me because they're now operating under a Machiavellian ideology that I recognized on the street. This was the part of the life that I led, and I'm seeing it in our government now. And, you know, people tell me all the time in messages, you know, Michael, uh, the mob should be running the country. I said, no, the mob should not be running the country. The government should be running the country the right way. Right. But I'm seeing so many similarities, and I'm, I'm seeing hypocrisy that scares me. Good. Not for me. I mean, I'm 70 years old. I, I live my life, but I have kids and grandchildren, and I want this country to be the same country I grew up in. Absolutely. And it, it really concerns me. I mean it. And I hope, you know, the reason I wrote the book was really to enlighten people that we have to hold our government officials accountable. Yeah. That's it. You know, for me in life, everything is about accountability. Who you're accountable to is the way you're going to direct your path in life. That's it. Yeah. You know? There's so much goodness in this country that, that I think there is. have been taken advantage of. Even being at this convention, the goodness in people, the genuine... Um, Nobody's, nobody's life is a cakewalk right now. There's so much human suffering and pain in the world that it's inescapable. It touches all of us, and it's touched all of our lives. But my point is, you're just reminded at a convention like this of the sheer goodness and, and gentleness of people. You know what I mean? And I don't like to see, I don't like to see sometimes what's blown up in the media as this I don't know. Is it, they've literally polarized this country in a way that that's not the world I grew up in. Right. It's not the leadership and tutorship that I grew up in, and they're not the values 
that I grew up in. And, and the people I've known in my lifetime, from every walk of life, from every ethnicity, from every background, in my life, they are the fabric of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel that that's been, in a way, blurred. I feel as if you put, put, a, put something over the lens, and I'm no longer seeing what I grew up with. You know, people that really worked and helped and motivated each other and were brothers and sisters of, of every persuasion with each other. I'm not seeing that. Well, I'm going to tell you, there's a big flaw in humanity. In Cousin Oster, we had a lot of, I think, good principles. I really mean that. But they were corrupted by money and power. Money and power, tremendous aphrodisiacs to people, and they're highly corruptive. And I'm seeing that happen in our government, and that's what concerns me, because a government should should be working for the benefit of the people. You know, and I tell people all the time, look, when we were on the street, we weren't working for the benefit of people all the time. We took care of our neighborhoods. We made sure there was no crime in our neighborhoods. We watched out for our families and the people we were concerned with, but everybody else was kind of whatever we had to do. And the government should not act like that, you know? You know, they shouldn't act like that. And I'm, I'm just feeling there's a real, there's a whole different thing and it's all corruption, money and power. Very and dangerous. And, and, uh, dangerous. Distortions in the media are uh, truly tragic. Yes. And well, very tragic consequences. Absolutely. You know, and especially in a free country. I mean, you, you, you depend upon an unbiased media to report the news. I've worked in almost every country on earth, and I've lived in most of them for a long time. And if people really understood what a blessing it is to be on this soil, mm -hmm. Um, they might change their attitude. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's everyone's life experience. But you won't have only to live in other, um, under other philosophies and democracies, uh, so-called so democracies. They're a joke. Yeah. They're an absolute joke. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, there was a, uh, an announcement made that I'm excited about. As a matter of fact, Angel Gotti had called me the day before I came here, and she said there's going to be a special announcement at Mob Movie Con. I can't tell you what it is. I had a feeling, but there's going to be a Gotti too. That's what they tell me. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I have, what to, do you think? I have to look at it very rationally. First of all, uh, and let this be the final statement, <laughs> I, I would never do anything that would um, in any way, shape, or form compromise the integrity of the original film oh, that I made. Oh, that's I would so never, great to hear. I would never do that. No way. I mean, too many great, great minds went into that. But I will say, I, I've studied his life. I was approached about this a while ago, a long time. It's been brewing for a long time. And um, I, I will say, as you probably know more than I do, in fact, I would have to embark now on a whole journey to even prep that role. But from what I understand, his sojourn in Marion in the last 10 years of his life was horrific. Yeah. Absolutely Horrible horrific. what they did. Horrible. And um, I don't know even if it enters into the realm of human rights, which I believe it does, but I think what happened to him was um, very, very tragic. Yeah, I, and, I, and, and I think probably that is the dilemma of most of the penal system today. Well, you know what people don't understand? Uh, having done eight years in prison, visited my father for over 30 years. I've been either in prison or visiting prison my entire life. So I'm intimately familiar with the system. What people don't understand is that the punishment is going to prison. 
You're not supposed to be punished more in prison unless you're a danger to yourself and everybody else around you. And that, that's not a, 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 an immense category in prison. The punishment is prison. You know, losing your freedom, being away from your loved ones, you know, having to, to live under that thing. But too often in this country, they, they don't understand that uh, they think they have to send people to prison to be persecuted more in prison. And that's not the way. You know, on 9-11, I spoke at, uh, in Washington to the uh, uh, Senate staff and a number of senators. They asked me a lot about, you know, prison reformation. And I said, you know, if you senators really care about your constituents, when people go into prison, you're supposed to rehabilitate them so that when they come out, they don't wreak havoc on society again. You can't just put them in there and think they're going to be around all other people in the same category, and they're going to educate themselves and all of a sudden come out upstanding citizens. Yeah. It's just not the right mentality. But our government thinks, oh, you've got to be tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime. They don't understand that rehabilitation is an important process, and there is good in people. You know, just because people make mistakes, and I'm not talking about the hard, we're not talking about serial killers that are in a whole different category. Right. But they don't understand that when there is a goodness in people, and some of these people have grown up in terrible situations. You know, I'm on, I'm in prison with young kids, 21, 22 years old, okay? You can write the same script for every single one of them. They grew up in a broken home. No father figure in the house. Mother trying to do their best, she's got her own problems, maybe she was a drug addict. The kid gets thrown into the community, he gets around the local drug dealer, he's trying to make a living, before you know it he's a gangbanger, and he ends up in prison or somewhere, God forbid, something worse. You know, I always say, what do you expect from that kid? You know, society caused that because of where we are today. I have seven children, they grew up in a great situation, and I had, I had a lot, you know, Trouble with my son at one point in time. He was going in the other direction. He had the best of everything. When you bring these kids up like that, what do you expect from them? Yeah. You know? And that's why I say in prison, teach them something. Teach them a trade. Teach them how to get along with people. These are things that they never learned on the outside. Yeah. And, you know, we'd have a much better situation. But, you know, it, it, politicians don't buy into that. They don't get it. Yeah. They don't get it. I also think, I mean, in a lot of ways, what, what really uh, disturbs me is that our society has been so poisoned uh, over and over again for so many years. You know, I was, I was delving, the, I'm, I'm writing a project myself for a long time now, and I was reviewing some statistics a few weeks ago, and I read about uh, something I find absolutely diabolical, which is the distribution of fentanyl. Well, mm -hmm. in... You figure in 2019, there were 70,000 deaths from fentanyl. So figure, mm -hmm. and just conservatively, let's say it's not 70,000 a year. Let's say it's, I don't know, let's say it's 50,000. 50, maybe, maybe it's now it's 125,000 deaths mm -hmm. since fentanyl had been in, in the right. distribution system. If you just take that figure, that is the equivalent of, how many 9-11s goes into 125,000? We lost 3,000 in 9-11. That, that, that's... That, that's God knows, seven, almost six, nine, eleven. Yeah. Or is it? I don't know. Yeah. No, four or five. More than that. Five, yeah. nine, eleven. Yeah. So I'm saying it doesn't make the news. All right. We'll never hear about it. I had a friend of mine, his wife passed away. I couldn't find the obituary. I go through the obituaries in my county, one hour north of Manhattan, 23 years old, dead. 23 years old, dead. Overdose, overdose, overdose. 23 years old, 25. In my oh. county. Kids are dying like flies.
you know. And in, 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 in a way, I, I find this our society has. Um, I once did a, an announcement for the Native Americans in Arizona and New Mexico, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize, but the heroin pipeline began in the 40s, mm-hmm. going through New Mexico and Arizona. Right, right. I did an announcement which was in Spanish and English. If you're being abused in your home, please call this number. They had 1,800 calls within two hours. Wow. So there's something, you know, there's something happening in this society that, that it's, it's, it's suffered tremendous damage. And I think, like you say, you know, I do a lot of research when I take on these characters. I went into a prison once in California, and I'll tell you, I, I, I said there was a whole ward of these kids lying face down in bunk beds with their shirts off, 16 years old. Face down, I'm thinking, what are these kids in that position for in this time of the day when they should be out playing basketball? Mm-hmm. And I said to the assistant to the warden, I said, why are they in that room like that? Well, if I let them out, they'll be raped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it's staggering when you think of how many people have been afflicted through the poisons that have uh, entered the society. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've watched, I, mean, I was, you know, blessed in my life. I put my kids to private school. I did everything I possibly could for them. But, you know, I'm scared to death every day of my life because the influences around people today, mm-hmm. it's not even its not even that it's, it's them. It's the influences that come around people. Yeah. You, you could walk down the street and, and in one second, your world turns That's upside right. down. So I, I always say I've been blessed. Well, I got to tell you, you have a, uh, uh, it's refreshing because you have a tremendous social conscience, Armand, and uh, it's really, no, I mean, it's really a pleasure speaking to you, you know, above and beyond your, your <laughs> tremendous talent and your great career. And Thank you that, very much. That brings me to this. What do you got going on now? Well, I'm, uh, I got to uh, stop uh, you. Uh, I, uh, no, no, no. I got to tell you one thing. <laughs> you know, they're doing this series all my life. You know how it goes. I mean, I think it's going to get picked up. I don't see anybody playing Sonny Francis but you. But <laughs> I really mean that. Wow. But yeah, I, I mean wow. that. I mean, you would be. Uh, uh, that's all I could say. What, what, what you must have seen in your lifetime must be just enough for ten lifetimes. Yeah. Well, true. And, and you would your be. Your father was some fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Talk about. I mean, you know, even, even when I when I when I talk mob lore, I mean, he's like. He's like one of the real heavyweights. He was major heavyweights, and I heard right up until right up until his dying day. Yeah, to, to, you know, wow. in, in a way, in a way, um, they were different, but but Gotti's principle, Gotti was Cousin Ostra till he dies. That was it, Cousin Ostra till he dies. I have a respect for that because this was his principle. This is what he believed. That was it. My father was the same way. I mean, they could have. They could offer him uh, anything in the world. He would not break his oath. That was it. He lived that way. He died that way. You know, I look at it. All right, Dad, I respect you. But, you know, our whole family was devastated and destroyed as a result of your involvement in this life. So there's two da- two ways to look at it. But I, still, I respect him. But at any rate, you, you I want to ask you one question. Sure. It, I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. What you're doing... Uh, aside from the fact that it is Christian-based, what you're doing, but aside from that, um, what was... See, what fascinates me about a character like Gotti, 
He wanted no redemption. Right. He did not care about redemption. You're right. And, and that, that's a frightening mindset to live mm -hmm. in. You know? What was the point in your life? Was there a time or an episode or something in your life? We, because, by the way, in some of the characters that I played, including the one you mentioned when we began the conversation about Q&A, that, when I found out about that guy's life, I mean, there is a point where you say, I can do this no more. What was that point when you looked at your life and you said, I can no longer be a, a part of this construct. I can no longer accept this as a way of life for my life. That's heavy. It's a big, big decision. Was there, a, was there an episode? Was there a point? Was there a moment when that came to you? There was a point, um, and it's unfortunate. I don't want to say this by saying something bad about my dad because I don't feel that way, but there was a point when my dad betrayed me, and I was devastated over it internally. I was devastated because I said, wow, if this life can separate father and son, and I love my, I idolize my dad. And it got to me in a way, I never said anything about it. I never said anything to him. I just kept it inside for over a year. Uh, but it bothered me tremendously. I don't know if I would have ever renounced my oath as a result of that. But then what happens, I meet this young girl who's now my wife of 37 years. I fell in love with her and I said, you know what? My mother spent 33 years without a husband. My sister dies young of an overdose of drugs. My brother's a drug addict 25 years. My whole family was destroyed. Am I going to do the same? Am I going to be with this young girl and destroy another family? Well, I have to make a decision. And uh, that's when I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I've seen too much destruction in this life, not only myself. Um, I'll tell you, listen, listen to this. I'm with a guy, another made guy. I'm driving him home one day. And uh, we get to the front of his house, and I'm dropping him off. He says, don't leave. Wait, Michael. It's okay. I knew this guy well. He goes up to the door, and he opens the door. And I see him, like, saying something in the house. Closes the door, gets back in the car. I says, Benny, what's the matter? He said, I can't go in the house. I said, why? He said, nobody's home. I said, Benny, it is your house. You live here. Him and his brother... His father, it was another made guy, his brother. His father was a made guy. His father was caught having a, an affair with another guy's wife or daughter. And the two sons were given the contract to kill him. That was 30 years earlier. He said, Michael, since that day, I can never be in my house alone because the ghost of my father haunts me. Wow. Intense. And that struck me like, wow. And I'm saying... Is that what we do in this life? Kill our own families? Those two things really, really got to me, Armand. But again, my mother, uh, my, my, my wife was a catalyst for me saying, I can't do this anymore. Powerful. I just can't. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah, it was uh, crazy stuff, but. Those are, the, those are the, the things that I, believe it or not, those are the things an actor looks for in the script. Mm. When, when does somebody become enlightened that this is this just not worth it yeah you know? i said it's a bad lot you know look I, I i always say this it's an evil life because any life that's that destructive to families and i've seen that every family is the same the families are destroyed 
as any family, any lifestyle that does that to a family is not a good life. Now, I'm not calling the guys evil. I was one of them. I just happened to be very blessed. And there was a lot of good guys. A lot of good guys. You know, they did things, but they were still good people. Yeah. Um, but it's a bad lifestyle. And I tell the same to these kids. Street life, the gang life, bad lives. It's a dead-end street. You're going to end up that way. And fortunately, I have credibility, and you know, maybe I can get to some of these kids over the past 20 years, which I, which I've been doing. My parents, uh, I believe, saved my life. I'll tell you a wild story. The night I was born, my mother was stricken with polio. She was paralyzed oh. from the neck down for a long the time. The same night. Same my mother. Wow. And um, I grew up with her in rehabilitation centers. I mean, I was physically trying to rebuild her body, and she only walked with braces and crutches for a short time. That that virus, by the way, was devastating. 13 million people were afflicted. Mm, with polio I remember. In 1949, the year I was born. I had a cousin that, that was uh, afflicted. It was rampant. And the thing is that um, I kept watching, you know, victims of this virus and how prevalent it was. And it was wild. Around 1956, 57, I don't remember when it was. My mother had a student who was also a kid that she went to rehab center with. A 12 year old kid who had polio. Mm-hmm. And she taught him piano. And uh, around 56, 57, there's a book written about what happened. That kid, Michael Farmer, 12 years old, was stabbed to death in Highbridge, two blocks from, from my house, by 19 kids. So that 19. was the beginning of the era of the gang war. The gang became West Side Story. I really believe my parents saved my life and my sister's life because they, they took all of us out. Was that event something that caused them to take oh, I, you out? I, I, they never spoke about it. Oh. It broke my mother's heart. I mean, we were devastated. Right. The kid was in the house all the time. Right. My point is that I really believe that they extracted us from the environs of what mm-hmm. was happening to otherwise a brilliant enclave of Manhattan, one of the brilliant neighborhoods. I remember, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so many baseball players, yeah, no. writers, Tiny Tim, Henry Kissinger. Yeah, you know, you know, they came out of that neighborhood. But I'm saying I really believe my parents saved my life from that, from that episode. Yeah. And um, I wish kids could understand what the... What the you know, what happens to people's lives, mm-hmm. the fragility of this journey yeah. is uh, wild. It's been awesome talking to you because I really mean this. From, I, I'm, I'm going to say it again. What you've done uh, f- for America is uh, something to stand up for. It's really, really beautiful. Well, thank you, Armand. And, and I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I have to say this. You've been one of my favorite guys <laughs> not knowing you for all of these years. Thank you. But now knowing you for these past several months, I mean, you're, you're, you're right there. You're at the top of the list. Uh, I mean, it's been a, an honor and a privilege Thank and a pleasure. And I hope we continue to. Well, with, with, with the help of God, we'll, uh, yes. we'll do something good. Sounds good. God bless All right. You, God bless. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this sit down as much as I did. And I just am thrilled with the relationship and the friendship that I've struck up with Armand. He's got a lot of things going on, by the way. He's uh, by no means retired, you know, so uh, keep an eye out for him. Like I said, never know who's going to pop up in my television series, but hopefully it'll be Armand. So uh, that's about it. How do I always leave you? You know it. Same way. Not going to change. Be safe. Be healthy. God bless you all. Yes, I'll see you next time. history like Al Capone who said uh, you can get a lot further with a kind word in a gun than you can with a kind word alone.
Pretty true. Now, how about Carmine Galanti? He said, no one would ever kill me. They wouldn't dare. Not so good. I think you remember when he was assassinated, laying in a pool of blood with a cigar hanging out of his mouth in front of a restaurant. Not too cool. But how about Paul Castellano, the one-time boss of the Gambino family? I'm going to read you a quote that's uh, very appropriate for today. Paul says, this life of ours, this is a wonderful life. If you can get through life like this and get away with it, hey, that's great. But it's very predictable. There's so many ways you can screw it up. And I think Big Paul did screw it up on December 16, 1985, in front of Spark Steakhouse. Francis, hope everybody's doing well. Hope you had a great weekend. It's Mob Movie Monday. Definitely a favorite of most of my followers. Today we're going to do uh, something that I think is real appropriate based upon my guest last week in studio, Chaz Palminteri. Great guest, great sit down. Comments were off the hook. They love this guy, and I understand why. He was terrific. So today we're going to do Boss of Bosses. It was a uh, 2002, I believe, television movie, and uh, Chaz stole the show. He was terrific in it. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think it was the greatest film, but Chaz did a great job in it, and I think it was fairly accurate. I think it told the story of Castellano from the time he was a child right up until the time that he got assassinated in front of Spark Steakhouse. You all know that. That's the ending, but everybody knows that at this point in time. And it was fairly accurate throughout, so I'm going to get into it a bit, but before I do that, I want to tell you again, Thank you so much for all the great comments we got with Chaz Palminteri. You know, he was the first in-studio guest that I had. I so enjoyed him. He's a class act. He's just a great conversationalist. We had a lot in common. I felt like I was back in Brooklyn talking, you know, to one of my friends in the old days. And we have formed a friendship, went out to dinner afterwards. Class act all the way. I really mean that. So it was really an honor and a privilege to have him in the studio. But before we get into that, let me thank you again. 550,000 subscribers. Thank all of you for tuning in. I appreciate it. And keep subscribing. You get the alerts and uh, you become part of this uh, whole YouTube gig that we're doing. So uh, thank you very much. You know, we had the big giveaway and uh, the grand prize winner is coming out to meet with me, sit with me at Slices, have great pizza, great conversation. Then he's coming over to the studio. He's going to see how we do all of this. He's going to have a great time. When we hit a million, God willing, who knows? I don't want to, you know, presume anything. But if you continue to like the content, hopefully we'll get there. It'll be a blowout. You know, another big one, big giveaway we're going to give. Because we appreciate you tuning into our channel. We know you have a lot of choices on YouTube. The fact that you choose ours, we show our appreciation. MichaelFrancis.com. Our community, our crew is growing every single day. People are loving it, encouraging one another. Post-pandemic, very necessary for many people. You know, business deals are coming out of it because people are sharing information. You get into my inner circle, terrific. We had a, a great Zoom call last week with about 50 or 60 of, uh, of our inner circle people and uh, sharing ideas, encouraging one another. I'm telling you, you will enjoy it and you'll get a lot out of it. So I encourage you to take a look. MichaelFrancis.com will give you all the information. So another thing, you know, a lot of you are uh, sending me messages, comments about Sammy Gravano. Am I going to do this sit down? 
And some of you have told me that Sammy made some remarks about me in the last video. Hey, I'm used to that. People take shots at me all the time. But he said, you know, I think Michael's a Christian. If we do sit down, I don't know if we will. We might. But if we do, he better bring God with him. Well, Sammy, let me tell you this. I always bring God with me wherever I go. I love God. Jesus Christ is my man. And I will bring him with me. But I want to tell you this. I'm also going to bring 25 years of my experience on the street with me. So I'll be ready for you, my friend. Let's see what happens. It's not guaranteed. Patrick Bed David is a good friend. You know him, Valuetainment. He's trying to put this thing together. We'll see what happens. No promises at this point, but I promise you, if it happens, I'll be ready for Sammy. That's okay. So let's get into Boss of Bosses. Again, good TV movie, pretty accurate. You know the story. Let me breeze through it real quickly. Paul Castellano was the cousin of Carlo Gambino, who was the one-time boss of the Gambino family. You know, they said he was the boss of all bosses. Who knows if that title is accurate. He uh, did have a lot of power as head of one of the biggest families, the Gambino family. When he passes away, he appoints his cousin, Paul Castellano, to be the boss. Neil Delacroix was passed over. Some people didn't like that, but Paulie did become the boss. Paul was more of a business guy. He wasn't really a real gangster type of guy. In this movie, I think you see the difference between a gangster and a racketeer. Paul being a racketeer, he wanted to make the family run like a business. He shunned violence when he didn't need it. He wanted his whole crew, his whole family to get into more of a business concept mind. Versus a gangster who, you know, they're street guys. I mean, they do what they have to do. Who's more important? Well, you know, you need them both. You know, you need some guys to do the heavy work, to do that kind of work. But let me tell you something. Without the racketeers and the money, they're just a bunch of street thugs. Money makes everything work. Money is power. It makes the mob work. It makes the government work. It makes any organization work. Money is power. And without it, you don't have much. Trust me on that. But there is a distinct difference here. I think Paul personifies the guy that tried to be a racketeer. And that's what he was. So, you know, the film opens up in their childhood. You know, they're younger guys. And it's uh, Paul Castellano, Neil Delacroix, and Piney Armand. And they kind of grew up together. They were under Carlo Gambino at that point in time. They proved their value, proved their worth on the street. They elevate into uh, made guys at some point in time. And Carlo, as you know, becomes the boss. There's a couple of scenes that kind of stand out. You know, that's how the film opens. But there's a couple of scenes that uh, stand out in my mind that I want to talk about. One of them was when Paul does take over. He calls all his couple regimes together. And he wants to lay out basically what he envisions the family to be. This is an order. When it comes from the boss, it's an order. And he tells him during that meeting a couple of things. We're a business. He said, we're going to be powerful as a business. We're going to be the biggest family. We're going to uh, try to stay away from the street stuff, stay away from violence when we don't need to do it. He wanted to elevate the mob family as more of a business-orientated family. I mean, he said, you know, we can even control the White House. One thing that he did say, and he made it very clear, and this was a commission ruling, we do not deal with drugs. If we deal in drugs, we die. Now, I've said this many times, and I've been, crit you know, comments come back to me, Michael, that's not true, and they mentioned Carmine Galante, and they mentioned Vito Genovese. Yes, I am not saying that, you know, there was never uh, drugs in the life. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that guys never dealt with drugs. What I'm saying was in that era in that time from the time i was made in 1975 until you know i left that life at least the deal was hands off you deal with drugs you die i was told that the night that i was made i know guys that got killed 
because they were dealing with drugs. I talked about my dear friend, Tony the Gawk, Tony Argello, who blew his brains out in a phone booth because he was dealing with drugs and he was afraid he was going to get walked into a room and wouldn't come out again. So you did not deal with drugs. And Paul Castellano tells his whole crew, you deal with drugs, you die. No second chance, no appeals, nothing. Deal with drugs, you die. And he made that very clear. Not to the liking of everybody in the room, especially at the time, John Gotti. That's made clear throughout the film. So that's a very interesting scene. You had all those guys together. You don't see that happening too much lately because with all the surveillance and all the informants around, guys don't want to get together as often as they did before. You know, it's not like it was prior to the 80s when you could have gotten together. But the 80s changed everything. Guys now on the street are very low-key. There was a time, I read the New York Post every day. Every morning I read it online. As soon as I get up, first thing I do. There was a time when you didn't go two days without a major mob story. Now I could read that paper and maybe every six months I see something about the mob. It's changed. Guys got a little smarter. They're undercover. I don't believe it's as powerful as it once was. Not in any which way, shape, or form. Trust me on that. But the guys are becoming very low-key, and that's to their advantage. Trust me in the long run. There's another scene there where Carlo Gambino is dying, and uh, Paul goes to his house. He had a house in Massapequa, Long Island, by the way, and I visited him once with my dad. I think it was the late 50s. I was a kid. I happened to go with my father, and I was there for, you know, a short time. I met Dad met with Carlo. I met him, said hello. He met with a few guys there. I don't remember what it was about. I was a kid. I wasn't really paying attention. It wasn't a big deal to me at that point in time. But it was a beautiful house in Massapequa, I believe, at that time. And uh, so we have a scene where Paul is going to visit Carlo because Carlo is very sick. And this was really interesting because Paul sits at Carlo's bedside and Carlo tells him, you know, I believe in God. He said, I do, but I'm afraid. And I was just thinking about that, you know, I believe in God, but I'm afraid. It brings to mind the time when, uh, you know, before I became a Christian, I was Catholic, but I wasn't religious. I hate that word, but I wasn't really practicing my faith at that point in time. And I would got walked into a room and, you know, one of the horrors of that life, you get walked into a room by your best friend, you're in trouble, you don't know it, you don't walk out again. Well, I took one of those walks that night. And the thing that I remember the most is that I started praying. You know, when you think you're going to meet your maker, I don't care what life you're in, you start to pray. That's been my experience, and many people have told me that. And Carlo's lying in bed. Now, this is the boss of the Gambino family, and he's telling his cousin, you know, I'm scared. He was afraid to die. And, you know, people, I can only tell you this. I don't know how people live without the knowledge of knowing that there is an afterlife, there is an attorney, and we're going to heaven. For me, you know, heaven is a real place. Hell is a real place. It's mentioned many, many times in the Bible. I believe it. And um, hopefully, you know, I'm secure in my faith. And I believe that God has forgiven me for my many sins. And then I'm on track to go the right way. And I don't know how people live without understanding where they're going to live for all of eternity. Just my thought. I like to share things uh, every once in a while. And Paul kind of calms him down a little bit. Cut to, you know, Carlo does die. But at that bedside meeting... Carlo tells Paul, I am uh, naming you as my successor. Now, once again, doesn't mean that the family has to accept that. In this case, they did. And Paul did become the boss, passed over Neil Delacroce. And what Carlo told Paul at the time, he said, look, you got to run this like a business. You're more of that type of guy. Neil is a street guy. He's more of a thug, a gangster. It's best for the family, Paul, if you take it over and 
put it in the right direction. So he named him as his successor at that point in time. That meeting that I referred to afterwards came after Paul became the boss, obviously. And once again, you know, the problem that Paul had is you can't take a bunch of street guys who grew up on the street, who really don't know much else, and all of a sudden try to turn them into business people. They're not going to the Wharton School of Business. They're not going to Harvard School of Business. You're not going to be able to train them to be business guys. This is not what they know. Now, I think the opposite is true. I know the opposite is true. You can take a business guy and turn him into a gangster when he needs to be. And if you're a made guy, that's the deal. I don't care who you are. When you have to be a gangster and you're ordered to be a gangster, you're a gangster or you don't last in that life. So I do understand that. But the problem Paul had was trying to impose that on the family. You've got to be in business now. You've got to stay away from the street stuff. This is all that they knew. And so right away there was pushback on that. Now, you don't verbalize it really too often to the boss, but a lot of guys didn't like it. And there was resentment with Paul early on. I had a clash with Paul. Before I was a made guy, I was a recruit. I'm not going to get into it. It's one of my past videos. It was over some chicken. And uh, I'll be honest with you, when I sat down with him, you know, I wasn't a real big fan of his. There's some guys you really enjoy being around. It's like regular life. And some guys that he wasn't my favorite guy. Let's put it that way. So I could see how he turned people off, you know, quite a bit. And I was in his company a few times after that, mostly, you know, at a wedding or something where the families went to and we said hello. I didn't really have much business with him, but some of my cop regime at the time visited him. I would drive him. So I saw him on many occasions. But that was a good scene. Two good scenes. Another good scene, or something that played well through the movie, you can see Neil Delacroce, who was a powerful guy, he was the underboss, you can see that there was some kind of resentment towards Paul, but Neil was a mob guy all the way, he wasn't going to buck Paul, he knew the rules, the boss is the boss, Gotti didn't play a prominent role in the film, but he was important there, and you saw that, you know, the resentment that Gotti had, number one, because Neil Delacroce was passed over as boss, and that's true, by the way, and number two, he just didn't like Paul's style, he says he wasn't a street guy, he's not a gangster, he shouldn't be the boss. And so that resentment came about right away. Neil Delacroix tells John, hey, he's the boss. That's it. You know, it's the same as the Gotti movie. Remember when Anthony okay. Quinn oh. tells Armand DeSante, who is Gotti? If I come here today and I was told to kill you, then these two zips, they'd kill you. Something to that effect. Well, in this movie, it was played the same way. Neil says, he's the boss. That's it. Done deal. And there is a scene there where somebody, you know, violated the rules of the family and we see him sitting in a chair and he's being worked over, beat up by Gotti's crew. And Paul comes in on it and he says something to the guy like, you know, you're getting what you deserve. Let this be a lesson to you, something to that effect. And then he takes Gotti to the side and he said, I didn't tell you to do this. You did this without me telling you to do this. And Gotti says, well, you know, Neil Delacroix and Paul stops him and says, hey, I'm the boss, not Neil. You don't do anything unless I tell you to do it. So he kind of set him straight at that point in time. Again, the resentment is brewing, brewing, brewing. Another scene, very telling, where uh, Paul is sitting in his house. You know, he had, they called this the White House. He had a place in Staten Island, and there was a huge place. And, you know, everybody knew about it at the time. It was behind gates, the whole bit. There's a scene there where Paul is sitting in his house. Again, Chaz Palminteri, he killed the role. He did it terrific. He carried the film. No doubt about it. Carried the film, gave dignity to the role, and it should have been a dignified role. I think it was Piney comes in and he says, you're not going to like this, Paul, but Bazzini was a guy, I think that was his name, Bazzini was a crew guy, a crew member, and uh, Paul had given him control over Miami, and they found out that he was dealing drugs. Well, Paul gets upset. He says, let's take care of it. Tommy Bellotti, 
who was the driver, a close guy to Paul, says, I'll take care of it, boss. He says, no, give it to Tommy Agro. Now, Tommy Agro, some of you know who he was. I knew Tommy fairly well. Again, not the most likable guy around, not a guy you want to be around. Let's put it that way. He gives Tommy Agro the contract. Tommy goes down there. He sets up the hit. He's going to uh, blow up the car that Bazzini is getting into. We see the scene late at night. Bazzini starts walking to the car, and he tells his driver, go to the car and bring it over here. He didn't want to walk there. Guy gets in the car. It blows up. They miss Bazzini. A shootout happens on the street. Bazzini lives, and Agro lives, but the cops are there, you know, the local police, and they arrest Bazzini. Another scene, we see him uh, in the station house. The feds, by the way, are surveilling all the time. They're watching everything, right? They find out what happened in Florida, and they see this as an opportunity to maybe go down and flip this guy, Bazzini. So they go down. We see a scene where they're talking to Bazzini. They tell him how much trouble he's in, the usual drill that they give him. But really, in this case, they intended to bug. They wanted to bug Paul Castellano's house because, I got to tell you, they couldn't get any evidence on him. And these surveillance techniques were so terrible. I mean, they were just so detrimental to guys on the street. They were devastating. That's the word I was trying to find. But they couldn't get a way to get into the house because they knew Paul had a lot of meetings in his house. So all they really wanted, they wanted the state to indict Paul Castellano so he would leave his house for a couple of days and they can then burglarize it in a way by getting into the house and installing the bugs. We see that happening. Castellano goes down to Florida. The feds go in. And they bugged the house. I think they put bugs in the lamps, shades, wherever they put it. They put them all over the house. You know, it was effective. Very effective, it turned out to be. So, we saw that scene. And I got to tell you, people, these surveillance techniques, they were devastating. Devastating to us. So many guys were caught on tape. I mean, John Gotti had 2,300 hours. John Gotti and his crew, and Angelo Ruggiero, and Jeannie Gotti, they had 2,300 hours of tapes. And they said everything they needed to say. It's very, very hard, you know, to convince a jury, okay, that, that you're not guilty when you're saying things very incriminating in your own voice on very clear tape recordings. I know. I experienced that at trial with some of my co-defendants, you know. They're admitting to the crimes right on tape. So that scene happens. They do effectively put the bugs on. Now, some of you know this. Paul was having an affair with his maid. I don't get that at all. You know, the maid living in a house, Gloria was her name, his wife Nina found out about it. There was a whole scene where she exploded. The feds were listening to it because the house had already been bugged. And uh, Nina explodes. She leaves Paul. Anyway, he's having an affair with his maid. Everybody frowned on that. I mean, that was, I, I don't understand what this guy was thinking at that point in time. It wasn't helpful at all. There is a great scene there where Neil Delacroce and Paul are talking and it becomes a little bit heated because the word is out. Paul finds out that Gotti's crew, Angelo Ruggiero, Jeannie Gotti, his brother, they were dealing drugs. Whether John was involved in it, I don't know. Not going to say, ask Sammy. And Paul is upset about it. And he's telling Neil. And they're going back and forth. And Neil is kind of telling him, you know, these are street guys. you got to let them earn. And Paul is saying no. And, and Jeannie... Jeannie is arguing with him, and it gets a little bit heated. And uh, Paul says something very interesting. He says, you know, yeah, these are all stand-up guys until the heat really comes on. And then we see what happens. And you know what? In many cases, he was right. Not too many guys stood up. Not too many guys at all. A lot of guys became informants. So Paul was kind of prophetic in saying that. Neil says this, and Neil is sick by this point in time. I think many of you knew he died. He says, look, I love John, and you got to promise me something, Paul. You won't do anything unless it's 100% confirmed. 
And Paul gives him his word. He says, no, unless it's confirmed, I'm not going to make a move on Gotti. But it is confirmed. Neil Delacroix dies, and now Gotti is out there on his own, pretty much. That's when things start to really heat up, and we see a scene where, you know, Gotti is telling his brother and Angelo, look what you did. We're going to be in trouble. We're all going to get killed. And I think that's when it starts or it gets in John's mind that he's got to act first. And then you all know, let me skip ahead to the ending, where there was a meeting set at Spark Steakhouse where Paul was going to meet with Gotti and they were going to go over a few things. And that's the night he got assassinated again. You've seen this a thousand times, no need to get into it. But the assassination scene was pretty good. Chaz was great getting killed, i got to say that. He did a great job. And that's basically how the movie ends. And, of course, you know that Salvatore Gravano, Sammy the Bull, Gotti, and Frankie Lacazio got indicted, and they were charged with the murder of Paul Castellano. I don't think Lacazio was, maybe it was, I don't remember the details, but they were charged, you know what happened with Sammy at that point in time, no need to get into it. So, Gotti gets convicted, he gets life, he dies in prison of cancer, and that's it. People, I want to tell you something, you know, I've said this a thousand times, in that life, if you die of old age and you die free, you've really accomplished something. And that's why I consider myself to be so blessed. You know, I don't know if I'm going to die of old age, but uh, I just turned 70, and I'm still here. So who knows how we're going to leave this earth, but uh, so far I'm still free. So I've reached an old age, and I am free, so I think I've accomplished a lot in that uh, regard. And I'm very thankful uh, to my God for preserving my life for whatever reason he chose to do that. So that's about it. Again, another great movie starring Chaz Palminteri. He carried the film. I'll say it again. I suggest that you watch it. You can get it on YouTube in its entirety. You can probably get it on one of the other streaming platforms. If you're in my crew, you probably have it already. We put it in there for you so so you can watch it in advance of this. So that's about it for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. You know, again, join the crew. Again, subscribe. We really appreciate that. And how do I always leave you? Be safe. Be healthy. God bless. Yes, I will see you next time.